Well, we do want to welcome all of you. Thank you for being here this morning uh, with us at Christ the King. Uh, also, for those of you that are watching on YouTube, uh, uh, we want to start inviting people to come back to church now that we're moving, I hope, hopefully in the right direction with respect to the pandemic. Uh, we're starting to loosen our mask policy. So if you're in really close proximity to someone, uh, be kind enough to keep your mask on. But if you're just moving about and, and not in close proximity or at the picnic this afternoon, uh, it's not necessary uh, to wear the mask. And um, we do hope that you all will join us this afternoon. It's going to be a lot of fun to, uh, to finally <laughs> get together in some other context than the one we've uh, been in. Uh, for those of you that were with us on Monday at Presbytery, we want to congratulate Dawson. He passed his uh, floor exams and ordination exams uh, in flying colors. So let's uh, give congratulations, brother. <laughs> the, uh, the, I, I hope you all, those of you that came to Presbytery know how, how it was an extraordinary meeting. I had so many of the presbyters, the elders from other places come up to me and say this was the best presbytery that we have ever had. Uh, and that comes from some of them that have been in this presbytery 40 years. So that, the, the praises for that goes to our Lord Jesus and to our uh, music uh, folks because they, they just blew everybody's mind with the, the music. Uh, we also want to remind you that because now that Dawson passed these exams, we are going to have an installation service uh, to install him as the assistant pastor and or ordained minister, a teaching elder in uh, the Presbyterian Church in America. That will be on May 23rd, so I hope you all will mark your calendars. Uh, the service will be probably in the afternoon, what about four? Are we talking four o'clock? Four o'clock in the afternoon, it'll be a beautiful service. We have some special guests coming from out of town uh, to help, plus uh, all of the commission of southern New Mexico and West Texas will be here to, uh, to lay hands on Dawson and ordain him to this holy uh, ministry. And uh, we'll have a reception afterwards, so we, we hope that you all will come. This is a great, actually, it's a great time to invite friends and family and people that uh, you say, hey, come to this thing with us, you get free dessert. And uh, so... Uh, please, please invite folks. Uh, we're going to take a look. Uh, it's always a good occasion when we baptize one of our babies or an adult uh, to talk a little bit about baptism and what we believe about baptism, uh, which whether or not you understand is shared by almost all of the great traditions of Christianity across the board. Uh, Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and all of the many Protestant denominations, there are many, many things that we share in our belief about baptism. There are a few things we don't share. Uh, the amount of water that we use, uh, the, uh, the, the pressure of water we use is, we all agree, it should be under 75 PSI. But the <laughs> uh, that's uh, according to Sinclair Ferguson. Uh, the amount of water we use, well, that varies, and to whom it is applied, that varies depending on the denomination. But uh, I want you to open your Bibles this morning to uh, Genesis chapter 14, just so we can talk about some of the more important aspects of our baptism, why it's important. And, uh, and, and uh, let's read the Word of God together, and then we'll talk about this. I'm sorry, Genesis 17. 
We're going to read the first 14 verses. And it's in your bulletin, by the way, if you don't have your scriptures with you. When Abram was 99 years old, he appeared to, God appeared to Abram and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old, you shall be shall circumcise. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is brought with your, bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from the people. He has broken my covenant. This is the word of the Lord. You know, a lot of folks, uh, we we argue about this all the time and, and understand this. This is an intramural uh, debate among the great branches of Christianity. Basically, we all believe many of the same fundamental things, but there are areas that we don't agree. And I think that in the United States, particularly in the past 50, 60 years, maybe longer, infant baptism has, has come under some suspicion. And uh, there's some hesitancy to practice infant baptism. The, me- the reasons for this are are many the revivalism that that this country went through in the 19th century and early 20th century uh, contributed to that because there were people that just wanted to get throw off every vestige of the old religion and embrace the new. This was a a product of of a certain branch of of the Reformation going back to the 1500s, but it, it didn't include everybody. It just included a particular branch uh, of the Protestant church. There was also the thing about American individualism. You know, it's me and Jesus and the Holy Spirit in my Bible. I don't need other people. I don't need anybody. This also has uh, uh, taken its toll on the idea of community. You can see 
how churches have, have in the West particularly are declining at an alarming rate. And uh, we need to address that. We need to be honest why that's happening. Why are people not feeling the need to gather together uh, both to worship and to live their lives in community? There's also this shift, and all of these things kind of go together. They're, they're a, a web, a matrix, if you will, uh, of a shift to anthro, what we call anthropocentrism, a man-centered idea of God. In other words, if I want God in my life, I invite him into my life. Otherwise, I don't have to have him in my life. And I can choose uh, which way this goes, uh, either to have God in my life or not. And uh, if you read your Bible, that's not the case. God interrupted many people, Abraham being (laughs) one of them, uh, where he just sovereignly comes in and interrupts people and and changes the direction of their life. So we've moved from a theocentric, which we call theocentrism, where God is central, to an anthropocentric, man-centered religion. Now, those of you that have been at Christ the King uh, any length of time know that I often quote Dr. Pratt, Richard Pratt, with respect to this, that if your religion, if, if your religion is just God-centered without being also man-centered, then you don't have Christianity at all. You, you don't have biblical Christianity. You see, the Bible tells us that God made man in his own image and that the whole Bible was written so that we could understand him. So there's, there is truly an anthropocentrism to our relationship with God, but it's based on his relationship to us, not whether or not we choose to have a relationship with him. And again, almost all branches of Christianity agree with that uh, for the most part. Another one of the things that cause trouble is that people, in the face of biblical uh, liberalism, where people start saying, well, the Bible's a myth, it's just legends, uh, you can't really trust it, we can't really believe it, the pendulum swung to wooden literalism where you took every single word literally without any paying any attention to the context of the scripture. And that is dangerous and leads to untold number uh, of problems. Uh, so we want to keep, keep that in mind. We, we need to read our Bible, give it the respect it is due and read it in context. What it's saying on its own terms, not our terms. Uh, also, there's a lot of things in Scripture that are not mentioned. Infant baptism is not explicitly mentioned in the New Testament. However, I think in the Bible, infant baptism is explicitly taught. We just read the passage upon which we would base that, that passage and a number of others. But there's a lot of things in the Bible that are not addressed explicitly like how to balance your checkbook. You know you're supposed to. You're not supposed to bounce checks, but it doesn't tell you how to do that. So there are lots of things like that. Slavery. There's no mention of doing away with slavery, although the groundwork for getting rid of such an odious practice was laid early on in the scripture, uh, Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. The, The the groundwork, the foundation for ending racism was there at the beginning and throughout. Uh, There's not one word in Scripture about pedophilia. Not one word in Scripture about abortion. 
Not one word in Scripture about child labor. And yet we all know these things are wrong. Because when you read your Bible, you must read it in context. So when you read something like, you shall not murder, and we, and we read something like, you've been made in the image of God, and we read these things, we know that they apply to things beyond what is just woodenly literal in the Bible written as a command. So, everybody okay with that? Are we cool? Okay. Doesn't matter, because I'm up here and you're out there, so... I'm the big boss. See, they, they elected me the BVB of our music group, the big vocal boss. I don't read music. I don't have that great of a voice, but I get, I get elected BVB, right? Isn't that great? Dawson loves that. And uh, so let's, let's look at why and what and wherefore about baptism because this is so very, very important. I'm going to talk about the nature of the covenant first, and uh, then we'll look at, at a couple other things. First of all, what is the nature of a covenant? This, se- this subject is so large, so huge, that we cannot do it justice in these few minutes that we have uh, during church. But I want to say a few things that the text actually highlights in chapter 17. One very important thing is that God is the maker of the covenant. People don't go to him and say, I want you and I want to make a covenant with you. God is the maker of the covenant. And Dr. Meredith Klein, in his landmark work on, on uh, this, from, from the ancient Near East, writings that we have discovered in archaeology from the ancient Near East, his landmark book, The Treaty of the Great King, he shows that what the covenant structure that was practiced throughout the Middle East in ancient Near East, and even beyond. I mean, there are ancient tribal cultures that practiced this kind of covenant making that we see in uh, Genesis uh, 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, and then the culmination of it in Genesis 22. We see something that was practiced by many, many people. And so we need to recognize that God is the maker of the covenant. He is the one who initiates these things. Look, in, look through the 14 verses, and if you carefully check, there's at least seven places where the possessive pronoun my is used. God tells him over and over, this is my covenant, my covenant, my covenant. But he also says it's my covenant with you, with you, with you. So there's... There's a beautiful balance that God is not just making the covenant with uh, himself. He's making the covenant with Abraham. There you have both the anthropocentric and theocentric parts of of the Bible. And, And listen, learning some of these theological terms is for your benefit. So don't get put off by that. There's a few things that everyone should know. And anthro, theocentric, those things, they're important because they manage how we think about God and about our relationship to Him. So God is the maker of the covenant. But the second thing, and this may be the most important part of covenants, is that it defines relationships between us and God. It can, in fact, define relationships with us and others. You see, we don't think that marriage 
is just a contract, do we? We think it's a covenant. It's not less than a contract, but it's infinitely more. When Dawson takes his ordination vows in a few weeks, he will be making a covenant with God to, uh, to submit himself to God's rule and to the accountability within our presbytery. And it's much more than a contract. It's more like a family or a tribal uh, relationship. Now, in the West, that's a little hard to get your head around. But many years ago, uh, one of the gentlemen in our church who was from the same area of Lebanon that my, my family came from took me to meet his dad, who was 90-some years old at the time. And uh, his dad has passed away, but his dad was uh, Lebanese, but he came through Mexico illegally, and <laughs> I think. And uh, he, he was living here in El Paso. And this gentleman from our church, who we're very distantly related, he introduced me to his father, who was seated in a chair. And he used a word in Arabic that meant this is the son of uh, my grandfather. He used this term that he used for my, my grandfather, my father's father. Uh, that means that they, the two of them, this elder man and my grandfather, were in a covenant relationship. And when this man heard the word and heard, he didn't know anything about me. In fact, I'm nobody. This 90-something-year-old man got up out of his chair. He had no English, just Spanish and Arabic. And he walks up to me and he embraced me and, and, and paid respect to me, who's nobody. I was the grandson of his covenant person. In Spanish, we call it compadre, right? Isn't that right? Compadre. So... Just so you know, these covenants go deeper than just contractual things. They are very deep. In the Noahic covenant, the covenant that God made with Noah, he made that covenant with Noah, all his descendants, and all of creation. Go read uh, uh, that account in in, uh, Genesis 6 through 9. With Abraham, it was to Abraham in particular, he uses singular you, but he also says your descendants and, listen carefully, everybody that belongs to you, people you've bought with money, whether they're a foreigner or not, doesn't even say anything about belief or faith. It just says, if you've believed me, now, everybody that belongs to you is included in this community. In the Mosaic Covenant, it was 12 tribes and they were given the Torah, the law, and the covenant was established with them through the law and the practices that were delineated in the law. The Davidic Covenant, the covenant that God made with David, 2 Samuel chapter 7, he promised David an everlasting kingdom and that an heir of David would live and would reign in the place of David on the throne forever, forever. And then there's the new covenant in which we now stand. Now I want you to listen carefully because this is extremely important. The day is coming, says the Lord, I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah, not like the one they broke, though I love them like a husband loves a wife, But a new covenant I will put 
my law deep within them, written on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. I will forgive their wickedness. Never remember their sins. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Never stop doing them good. And I will put desire in their hearts to worship me and never leave me. Now that's a promise to who? It's a promise to Israel and Judah. But what do you see happening in the New Testament, folks? And this, is, this cannot be stressed too much. This promise that was made to Israel and Judah is directly applied to the Gentile church in the New Testament. There's no more Jew. There's no more Gentile. There's no more male and female. God is going to look at everyone, all humanity, not based on their ethnicity, but on to... To whom do you belong? Who owns you? Who's got you? Your life. Who is your Lord? Who is your King? Who is your Master? To whom do you bend the knee? And do what He says. Go where He sends you. Who do you lay the sword of your life at at their feet and say, You are my God. Command me. In the New Testament... It's all people who belong to Jesus Christ. And we know this because there are... I'm I'm just going to give you a couple. Hebrews chapter 8, Hebrews chapter 10, uh, Galatians chapter 3, Romans chapter 4. All of these scriptures point us to the continuation of God's covenant. In other words, it expands, it doesn't retract while... Our Baptistic brothers and sisters will say to us, there is no scripture that explicitly teaches baptism of infants. As R.C. Sproul did when his, in his debate with John uh, MacArthur and with Alastair Begg, R.C. said, yeah, that's true. But there's also no scripture saying that my children and my grandchildren do not belong to God. How dare you? Now, you've got to be somebody to tell John MacArthur, how dare you? And R.C. was able to do it. How dare you say my children and my grandchildren don't belong to God, that they're not part of the church, that they are not in, they're out. How can you say that? And that's really what is so important, folks. If you see yourself as a stepchild of God, it's going to be very hard for you to come sit at His table and eat and drink His body and His blood like it's your own, like you belong there. That 93-year-old gentleman made me feel like I belonged in his arms, even though he didn't know me. And that's what we get from the ancient world, this covenantal relationship that we can have with people. And that's what we have in this church. You heard the vows that Matt and Lauren took this morning on behalf of their children. That is a covenant. I just did a wedding a couple weeks ago in Dallas. The couple took vows. That is a covenant. And we need to understand that. When you join the church, we received members a few weeks ago. They entered into a covenant with God and His church. And it's all because we have a covenant with God that is ever 
lasting, that continues, that expands. It doesn't shrink back and throw our kids out when Jesus comes. No, it includes our kids. And it includes women and Gentiles and everybody else. That's why we don't circumcise anymore. There's continuity. R.C. used to teach us there's continuity, but there's also discontinuity. And the discontinuity is in the administration of many of these sacraments. We don't kill lambs and, you know, spread their blood on our doorposts and do all of those things, but we have the emblems of them. Albeit they're not one-to-one correspondent, they do correspond, and there they are before you. The water is there before you. Circumcision was just a shadow of what water would be in the New Testament. Water would cover not just males eight days old, it would cover males and females at any age. Believers, we believe in believers' baptism at Christ the King. Anybody that's not been baptized, come be baptized and you will be saved but we also believe in including our children. It would have been unthinkable for the ancient people in Jesus' day to say, oh, New Testament, no more kids. We've got to wait for them to do whatever it is to come into the covenant. Again, the continuity of the covenant is essential for you. Otherwise, and if you don't believe this, just look around at our culture we're seeing our kids leaving the church in droves. And if you ask anybody that studies these things, you can ask Dawson, he actually knows more about it than I do. A lot of it is because they've never really owned their relationship with God for themselves, right? They they don't own it. It's not theirs. It's their parents, but it's not theirs. And so when I prayed for Leah this morning, I said, I pray that she never knows a day in her life that Jesus Christ is not her Lord. And I hope that you all will pray that for your children as well. So there is continuity in the covenant. Look at verses 7 through 9. I will establish my covenant between you and your offspring after you, their generations and so forth, to be God to you and your offspring. He repeats offspring. I don't know how many times in this passage. I didn't count those. I will give you the land of your sojournings, Canaan. Now, a lot of Christianity says, oh, that applies to the Jews only. Well, I beg to differ. In Matthew 28, Jesus said, no longer Canaan, no longer Palestine, no longer Israel. What did Jesus say in in Matthew 28? Go into what? All the world. The world's now mine. I, I don't want this little piece of ground I want it all. And all, he, all Jesus is doing is recapitulating Genesis chapter 2. I'm giving you dominion. I'm giving you the land. I'm giving you the garden. And I want you to take the fruitfulness of the garden and I want you to expand it to the world. It was never about a little plot of land in the Middle East. Never. It was always about the world from the beginning till now. So these promises have continuity. And the sign of the covenant, look, this is a sign, eight days old, children, male circumcised, all that. All good. We don't, we don't disagree with that. But the New Testament is explicitly clear 
that we don't circumcise anymore. What we do is we baptize. And what's interesting is all the major branches of Christianity all agree that there is correspondence between these two. Not 100%, but there is continuity and some discontinuity. Not a flint knife, but water. The amount, all those things we can argue about otherwise. Infant males, eight days old, believing parents, adult males upon profession of faith. That was the old covenant. Listen to this. New covenant, water baptism. Infants, both male and female. Of believing parents, that's the same. Both male and female adults upon profession of faith. Do you see the continuity? Well, it's there. Paul said circumcision is a sign or was a sign that Abraham already had faith. You see, Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him as righteousness in Genesis 15, long before circumcision. And R.C., again, I'm quoting R.C. this morning a lot, but R.C. says in his opinion, and I wouldn't want to argue with him, but in his opinion, that scripture... Genesis 15, most important scripture in the Bible. God already accepted him, the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 4, and declared him or imputed to him righteousness even before he was circumcised. You see, circumcision was just a sign of something that had already taken place in the life of Abraham, and it begs the question, my friends, Why then apply it to your children? And it's because if they don't have that sign, let me be blunt, they will be cut off. Now here we diverge from our Baptist brothers and sisters wildly. And they would probably take offense. I hope no Baptists are watching on YouTube. I trust there aren't any here because we we have a device in the door, the frame of the door that detects that. You know I'm kidding, right? All right, thank you. Look, we diverge hugely at that point. And I think that that's important to understand. Otherwise, on the basis of what? Please tell me, on the basis of what are you building your personal individual salvation as a human being? On the basis of what? The basis that you're building your salvation on is not your decision, your faith, your nothing. The foundation that you're building it on is God's promises to you. You are saved by faith, not by works. You're saved by grace through faith and not by works, lest anyone should boast. It's right there in front of our eyes, and that's what our children need to be taught from the time that they are little. You belong to God, not that you don't belong to God. Dear Lord, have mercy. Why would we tell our children, you don't belong to Jesus? I know they need to make a decision. I know they need to come to the table and confirm their faith. There's no question about that. They're not just saved automatically. 
But my goodness, folks, on the basis of what are you going to tell your children? That they should come to Jesus. Because they want Jesus? Well, look around you, that isn't the case. What is the basis? The basis should be because He wants you. He's faithful to you. He will track you down. He will never let you go. Never. I was baptized as an infant in the Eastern Orthodox Church. And I'll tell you what, long before I I got water baptized in a swimming pool years later, God was tracking me down. Never let me go. And I bet you that is the case with many, if not most of you, that long before you knew Him, there was something unsettled inside your soul. Something didn't fit. There was emptiness. Augustine said, you made us for yourselves. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. What is that gnawing thing that's down in here? We start searching. We look for it in, in religion. We look for it in our businesses. We look for it in money, in sex, in, in possessions, in status. We look for it everywhere we can find it. Some of us even go to seminary so we can find it. Right, Ben? Right? It's the truth. We get all of our identity because we know so dang much. More than you. And we we love holding that somewhere in the back. We would never admit it. See, I'm admitting it right now, so yikes. But the reality is we're all clinging to things that make us who we are. And here, right in front of our eyes, God is saying, I'll make you who you are, and I'm going to do it when you're eight days old before you know me. I'll make you who you are. What are you going to drive the anchors of your soul down into? But His promise to you, for goodness sakes, not your promises to Him. How many times have you broken those promises? I, I broke mine half a dozen times before I ever got from Flamingo Street over here. I mean, really. We've lost our minds, I think. And so this is a reminder of the importance of us to ground our faith in God's covenant, in what He has promised. He promised Matthew and Lauren. He promised. The the, the covenant that they spoke to Him, what they promised to God was no good for nothing unless God was promising something to them. Do you see it? The continuity, the reciprocity, do you see that? You could promise the sun, moon, and stars to God, but it would mean nothing unless God had already said to you, the sun, moon, and stars are yours. For you, the earth and the fullness thereof, for you, I give to you first Then we come and bring our babies and our lives as adults, whatever it is, we come and present them to Him because there's continuity, because it's rock solid. I don't need an explicit scripture in the New Testament, although, again, R.C. would argue there are, but that's another story. What what are you going to base your life on? The New Testament is a promise to you, not you to God. All right.
So let me finish with this. Circumcision preceded or followed Abraham's faith. It didn't precede his faith. And the Apostle Paul said this again in uh, the book of Galatians. Now that you, and the you is plural, and it means you uncircumcised Gentiles, that's who the book of Galatians is written to. You uncircumcised Gentiles belong to Christ. Listen to this. Honestly, folks, I don't understand how people don't get this. You're the true children of Abraham, his heirs. God's promise belongs to you. And if you're dividing Christianity and and faith into Jews and Gentiles, you are violating the very fundamentals of our faith. Down at the rock bottom, there is no Jew, there is no Gentile, there, there is only Christ. The New Testament church does not, listen, does not replace Israel. Replacement theology is, is a rank heresy. But somebody does replace Israel. And John 15 tells us who. I am the true vine. I am the door. I'm the shepherd. I'm the light. I'm the bread. I'm the living water. I came down from heaven. I give my life to you. I am true Israel. And you must be grafted into me. Once you are, You're as much a son and daughter of our Lord Jesus Christ as this blessed father of our faith, Abraham. Now I want to ask you parents, what stronger foundation and promise do you have than that to pray for your children no matter how they go? They go sideways, and many of our kids do. They go sideways. What is the basis upon which you are going to pray them back into the kingdom? Are you just going to hope somebody, you know, tortures them back into the kingdom by scolding them to death? No. They belong to you. When I went and saw Bob Ingram in Florida, my kids were losing their mind in Florida. And, and I went to see our pastor at St. Paul's, and I said, Bob, what do we do? And Bob said, Chuck, you cannot live in a, in a, in a pool of regret your whole life over mistakes you made with your kids. Do you trust Him? Do you trust Jesus that these children belong to Him? And I said, yes. Then with your dying breath on your deathbed and your kids are far away from God, you cry out to Him. You promised. And then go and die. What better hope do you and I have than that? I I don't know. On top of that... What about your own individual life? When things go sideways, you get a bad diagnosis or your husband or wife leaves you or, or you run out of money or whatever the case is, whatever it is, what do you want to base your going to the Almighty God with? You want to go to Him on the basis of His promise to you, not your faithfulness to Him because like I said, it, it your faithfulness to Him any hour of the day could be good, bad, or indifferent. Right? So what do you do? You trust Him. And what is the the key that locks that door for us that we know for sure that God has put this promise into something that is indestructible? 
that cannot be destroyed, that cannot be assailed, that it is rock solid till the day you leave this earth and close your eyes in death. How can we have hope and not let go? Here it is. I hope you listen. In Him, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him in newness of life, through the powerful working of God, who raised Jesus from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him. Having forgiven, listen, having forgiven us our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to his cross. Jesus was a circumcised Jew. And for no fault of his own, for no sin of his own, but for yours and mine, he was nailed to the cross and the Apostle Paul and other writers in the New Testament say he was circumcised. He was cut off. He was abandoned. He was broken. He was sliced through and through and his blood came and his life went out. He was lost so that we could be saved, so that we could be brought in, so that we could stand with our children before Him and say, You promised. And have that security for the rest of our lives that He will never leave us nor our offspring all the days of our life. That's where you must plant your heart and your faith. Jesus cut off for us, abandoned for us, dead for us, and risen for us. Will you trust Him? I hope you will. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we thank You for Your goodness and mercy that endures forever. Uh, Truly there is no one like You in heaven above or on the earth beneath. You alone are God and have made these promises to us and to our children. And we cling to You, Holy Father, against all the all the pressure that the world puts upon us not to trust you. We choose to trust you because you have freed us from the fear of death, hell, and the grave. So please, Father, we pray for our lives, for our church, for our people, our children. Help us, save us, and have mercy on us according to your grace. Amen.